Bienvenidos a la Chicana Mother Work Podcast. This is Cecilia, Christine, Judy, Yvette, Michelle from the Chicana Mother Work Collective. We are a collective of Chicana, PhD, mother scholars, artists, and activists. The Chicana Mother Work Podcast aims to create a communal space for dialogue that sheds light on how the labor of mothering can be a transformative act within academia and beyond. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Chicana Mother Work is intergenerational. Chicana Mother Work means carving space. Chicana Mother Work means healing ourselves. Chicana Mother Work is an imaginary. Chicana Mother Work makes our labor visible. Our labor is our prayer. Our mothering is our offering. So we're going to get started. Buenas tardes. Good afternoon to everybody. It's wonderful to see all these faces. Um, so my name is Michelle Tellez, and I'm a faculty at the University of Arizona, and I'm a member of the Chicana Mother Work Collective, and each of us is going to introduce ourselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Ruth Perez. I'm an adjunct at Cal State Fullerton. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Yvette uh, martinez Vu, pronouns she, her, hers, and I am the Associate Director of the McNair Program at UCSB. Hi, everybody. My name is Cecilia Caballero. I use she, her, her pronouns. Um, I am a writer, poet, um, facilitator, and single mom. Thanks. So we're going to get started. And so this is the Chicana Motherwork Anthology Reunion. Um, we are the Chicana Motherwork Collective. We were born out of uh, a collective dream, really, uh, back in 2014. And we always like to tell the story that we met at this uh, conference um, because you know, I started writing about Chicana mothering back then, and I, it was out of my rabia and furry and, and hope that I needed to get it on paper. And luckily, the, those offerings, those words landed on an incredible group of scholars who reached out. And, and since then, we um, have presented together, created together, uh, loved together, and um, tried to build a project around these ideas that we share um, and a lot of it has come out of wanting to visibilize our experiences, but also to democratize how knowledge is produced and how knowledge is shared, right? And so in that, we uh, have created, you know, our podcast, we've done presentations, both in the community and academic settings. Um, and then, of course, the anthology emerges because we realized we wanted to bring in um, an opportunity for others to share their stories, testimonials, and research around these topics. Uh, and so that is how the idea for the Chicana Motherwork Anthology emerges. Um, we sent out a call for papers in September of 2018, and we were thrilled to receive like, I don't know, close to 90 submissions within a four week period. And, um, and we honor all those voices that were not actually included in the text, um, but also honor all those and our contributors who are here today and those who couldn't be here today because they're, they were, they're, their chapters are in this book and are, and are out there in the world, you know, being shared and read by so many people. Um, we were really pleased with the success of the anthology. Um, and I think that part of the reason that we had so many um, submissions is because we were feeling a need, right? That uh, other places, both in the in scholarship and academic circles and in community circles, people weren't um, seeing or reading about. 
Uh, one of the reasons we also created our online blog where we publish the stories and uh, research and testimonials of other uh, scholars and women of color and activists and artists is because not everybody could be published in this text, right? And so we now also have a blog and we welcome anyone to submit um, their stories or research there to us. So what we wanted to do today was just to kind of reconnect. Um, the book was released in March of 2019. We didn't do a one year anniversary because we uh, all went into a, a period of mourning and, um, and the world really just radically transformed for all of us, I think. And uh, so I wanna honor all the lives that have dramatically shifted the lives lost, um, given the racial violence, pandemic, um, regimes around the world that continue to silence and oppress our communities and our people. So we wanted to bring joy to see each other's faces, to acknowledge the work that we put together two years ago, um, and then to share it with anybody who's new to this conversation here and our uh, meeting in our platica this afternoon. So we have some questions. We have many of the contributors here today. I wanted to just read one quick part of the introduction to just kind of talk about why or, or how the book is organized. So this is an edited collection of research testimonios and essays about Chicana, another woman of color mothering that was born out of a collective dream, imagined together through tears, laughter, meals, and many, many conversations. It's organized in four parts, uh, separation, migration, state violence, and detention. The second part is Chicana Latina, women of color, mother activists. The third part is intergenerational mothering. And the fourth part is loss, reproductive justice and holistic pregnancy. This book showcases research and testimonios by Chicana and other women of color, mother scholars and activists who center mothering as an act of transformative labor within academic and community spaces through an intersectional lens. And so all of these amazing contributors that are here today, um, you know, form part of this book. And so what I would like to do is to invite each of them. Oh, I'm sorry. And let me just say a couple of things. One of our Chicana Mother Work members isn't here because she's celebrating uh, her sister's graduation from college, uh, Christine Vega. So we want to give her a shout out. We miss her. She's always here with us. And that's why we don't have any beautiful artwork because she would be doing that for us. <laughs> and then um, and then today, May 24th, for many years, my entire life was my is my mom's birthday. My mom passed away 10 years ago. And so I want to honor my mom, Maria Cristina Tellez, today and, and all of those lessons that she brought to me and to be here with you all this afternoon. So... Um, of course, we also didn't ha don't have our the writer Ana Castillo with us today, who uh, wrote the foreword of our anthology. And we're so honored to have her do that. But we do have many contributors here today, so we're going to start um, with uh, Grace Gomez. If you could please introduce yourself briefly. There's um, your pronouns, affiliation, and maybe if you can each share the title of your chapter, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. My name is Grace, uh, she, her. I am the program coordinator of Reframing Justice, which is um, an advocacy platform for folks who are currently and formerly incarcerated. Um, and my chapter is entitled Fierce Mamas Rising. Irene. 
Thank you, Michelle, and all the co-editors for bringing us together. It's so nice to, to also meet the other contributors because I don't know many of you, so it's beautiful to see your faces. Um, I'm Irene, and uh, she, her, hers is, are my pronouns. I'm a professor of women's studies at San Diego State University, and I've been there almost 20 years now. And um, I'm also uh, the femtor for the Curandera Scholar Activist Program that has seen lots of undergrads uh, throughout the years. And my piece is called Abrazos de Conocimiento Across the Generations, Chicana Mothering and Daughtering in the Borderlands. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm, I'm uh, calling in from the Pacific Northwest here um, at Western Washington University, um, where I am Associate Professor in Secondary Education and founding director of the Education and Social Justice Minor and Program on our campus. Um, so fortunate to be here in a group and to kind of echo it. And it's so good to see faces that are both familiar and that I know that I've known for a while. Like I see Alma and Victoria and folks that I got a chance to meet at the NWSA conference. Can't believe it's been a minute already since we were at that space. Um, and, you know, meeting new folks at the same time, it's really wonderful. So. Um, yeah, so I'm just really excited to be here. My, my uh, chapter um, is focused on um, organizing work um, that I did with migrant mothers, um, and it's called Madres en Lucha, Forging Motherhood as Political Movement Building Across Borders. Um, so again, really honored to be here. Hola a todas, todos. Uh, I am Gretel Veras Rosas. I'm an assistant professor at California State Dominguez Hills, hopefully pretty soon associate professor after this summer. Um, my piece was titled Coordinate, a testimonial on migration, mothering, and teaching. Andrea. Hello, um, good afternoon. I'm Andrea Garbito Martinez, um, and I'm an assistant professor of teacher education at Weber State University um, in Utah. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, and I have a little one with me, Agustin. And the title of my chapter is Enseñanzas de mi Madre, Chicana Mother-Daughter Digital Conexiones, which I'm really excited um, to be here. Hello, peace. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. My name is Victoria Isabel Duran. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and or she, her, ella. And my piece that I contributed in number eight, which symbolically I'm like, I love that it fell on number eight, infinite. Uh, Mala, Mama, academic, liberadora, activista. It's uh, drawn from homemade theory. And it is an offering of love. Uh, it's a framework uh, in which I used for my dissertation and I just defended and I just graduated. So I am feeling <laughs> over the moon, over the luna and in so much gratitude. And I, um, I am a high school teacher in ethnic studies. I've been teaching for 12 years in San Jose and um, a new doctora, so yes. <laughs> And mama of three, because all my babies came in the dissertation uh, process. So three doctoral babies at it. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alma Flores, pronouns she, her, hers. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the College of Education at California State University, Sacramento. Uh, very happy to be here. Um, yeah, I echo the sentiment. Finally, Catherine. Hi, everyone. I'm Catherine. She, her, hers, ella. Um, it's so good to share space with so many chingonas, so I just wanted to throw that out. Um, and I'm currently a doctoral student at UC Santa Barbara, um, 
And the title of my chapter was uh, Gang Affiliated Chicana Teen Mama Against Systemic Violence, a Testimonial Challenging Dominant Discourse Through Academic Bravery. It's nice to be here with you. So happy to see everybody. Um, and what we wanna do is just kind of have a conversation, right? And so we're gonna ask a set of questions that anybody's gonna be able to jump in. And then the last question is gonna be for each panelist to respond to. So I turn it over to Judy. The first question we have, how did you hear about the call? And this was in September, 2018. And where were you positioned? Um, and this could be mentally, physically, professionally at that time. Grace, do you wanna go? Sure. Um, so I think that the call to submit was forwarded to me, and I think Michelle may have sent it to me. And um, I was really in the thick of it, actually, when I received the call. I was um, in the middle of a divorce, my children, um, you know, kind of falling apart in, in that, um, the trauma of uncoupling um engaged in really deep movement work with um, folks inside um and doing work uh, research on community safety that um no one in my nonprofit seemed to be interested in um and now that work really forms the foundation of um, our nonprofit organization um and i was still really in the pain of um, what felt like being forced out of the academy. Um, so I graduated in 2015 with my um, doctorate in um, justice studies, like critical criminology. Um, and because I am directly impacted by the punishment system, I've faced a lot of barriers um, in even completing that degree. And then on the job market, <clears throat> basically an offer was rescinded as a result of my conviction history. And so I felt this real, you know, um, kind of pain of um, being rejected by, um, by the academy really. So um, I was nervous, I was actually scared <laughs> to submit to the anthology and kind of be set up to face rejection, like rejection of that scholarship as well. So it was a risk, <laughs> um, a personal risk to participate in, in this project. Um, and I find these spaces like super intimidating even still. Um, Thank you so much, Grace, for sharing um, your vulnerability in this. I think it's powerful, right? And that's why it's always incredible for me. I was so excited to ask this question, where were you? You know, when we got together, I was the mess personally. <laughs> this space that really helped me. So thank you so much. But before we go there, Gabby just joined us. So we can have her just introduce herself, um, your pronouns, and then the chapter, if, if you can. Yeah, I'm Gabriela Spears Rico, and I'm an assistant professor of Chicano Latino Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus. And my chapter was um, Decolonial Purepecha Maternalista um, Feminism. 
and in the anthology. And I apologize for being tardy. Um, I was driving up to the boundary boundary waters, bringing my daughter up here um, to the border um, with Canada. It's a really sacred place for her Ojibwe people. So that's where I'm joining you from today, from um, Dakota and Ojibwe land in, in Minnesota. I'm really excited to be here with you all celebrating this amazing second anniversary of this groundbreaking anthology. And thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, um, Gabby. Um, if anybody else wants to um, answer question number one, otherwise we'll jump into question number two. I know it was since 2018. I'm refreshing our memories. Anyone else? I can jump in a little bit um, and just share that. So, you know, it's interesting because I'm in, in, in a geographic space that's so different than my LA uh, LA native self, right? And sort of being uh, up in this kind of interesting, and we're about 20 minutes uh, south of the Canadian border. Um, and yet, you know, the same communities continue to get surveilled and the complexities of living up here in many ways are no different, but it's just a, a different context in a, in a lot of ways. And so the, the campus that I'm at, I feel like, has an incredible group of, of um, <laughs> chingonas, women and femmes of color who are often leading as we are in many movements um, for change, we're leading um, change on our campus. And um, September of 2018, they, they led a charge to take over the president's office to demand the call for ethnic studies on our campus. Um, and it was at a time where I was, I'd already been you know, at Western for about five years. Um, and just going through the things we often hear, right? The constant sort of, um, oh, you know, overabundance requests for service, the constant being burnt out, the, the constant delegitimizing of who we are, the constant sort of battles to claim our humanity in faculty spaces, and, and then finding such, such incredible joy in, in these intergenerational spaces with students who were leading movements on our campus. Um, but at the same time, like struggling to find a place, like, you know, what is my relationship to this you know, place that's not home to this community to, um, yeah, to just kind of the lands and waters. We're surrounded by tribal communities, tribal nations here too. And so finding, trying to find my anchor, I think in a really, um, you know, in a really complex moment. Um, and I couldn't help in this moment of seeing this kind of, this, this rise of a movement on campus, like thinking back to the mothers and thinking back to the lessons of the work they did throughout, you know, both in Northern and Southern California to launch movements around, you know, against the sort of draconian immigration laws to kind of make space for um, different kinds of battles for school reform for their children. Um, but also finding like remembering all the little joys that we had along the way, like it wasn't always battling, right? And so it was so much about La Casita and like Oliva's like really bomb ass buñuelos and you know, the kids at the feet. And, uh, you know, it was just like, so it was like all this flood of memories as I watched these like, you know, um, you know, young activists on our campus meeting in the basement, breaking bread, having joy, having laughter. And I think when I saw the call for me, it was an opportunity to both not just kind of engage that work because I had in many ways, um, I, tr I was troubled with, you know, I was doing organizing work for a long time with the group, but I was also really protective of engaging that work in the academy, right? I didn't know how much of it to share. And I felt it was such a sacred space and I didn't, I, I just, and I still do. So I had kind of like not, not engaged it for a while. And I felt the timing, the confluence of so many things, the stuff that was happening on our campus, the memories that brought back of like the work with the mothers and then this opportunity. And I'm like, maybe this is a call, like a call to, to really kind of go back to this work and to really think about those lessons and to think about those, those moments that really had an impact in my own you know, my own relationship to, um, you know, complex relationship to mother work, but also this relationship that we have to movement building. And I think they they really centered that for me. So 
that's where I was September 2018 when all this happened. It was this confluence of so many different things that I thought I have to just, I have to respond to this call. So really grateful for that. Thank you so much. And we're so happy that you were able to feel um, safe to share with us and honored that you did. So thank you so much. Um, and then we have Andrea. Yeah, so I wanted to share. Um, so at the time when I wrote this chapter, I was in the middle of my doctorate program. And um, I was feeling a lot like I was a forever student, you know, like everybody's like, well, oh, that's not And I was like, oh, yeah, middle, yeah, middle, right. And so it felt like there was somehow like a, a, a time like at the race. But in the middle of it, um, I always felt like, um, so I focused a lot on this concept of a sacrificio de la madre, right? That we have to sacrifice ourselves and put our children first and and finding that balance. And so um, at the time, you know, I didn't know much about like postpartum depression. I didn't know how uh, graduate school can really heighten that up and how to talk about it. Uh, finding the resources or even or even reaching out and having a really open conversation and saying, you know, um, in the midst of doing my doctor work, like what, um, what is happening to my body and my mind. Um, but it always felt like I had to put um, academia first, right. And but I, but I wanted to put myself first. So it, it, it was really focused on conversations with my mom. And as I'm sitting here with a newborn, um, and my mother being upstairs uh, here with me, um, it's kind of like what we're experiencing right now with the pandemic, this idea of feeling that sacrifice, right, as a mother, um, and feeling um, a loss as well. Um, I, I feel like uh, um, still being in academia, right, there is that sense of balance, but being able to reframe that, I think at the time, I was framing it as balance. Um, but I know that there's a lot more um, discussion that it's not about balance, right? It's about advocating and ensuring that you have the right resources and the opportunities um, that you need, right? And so I, I think that in the time when you said health and profession where I was in 2018, um, I was feeling that sacrifice. But right now with COVID and being a mom and an academic, I still feel like that heightened it, like this, this idea we have to sacrifice ourselves, so. Well, yes, I feel it. I think it's, it's, it's kind of going back to how we felt. So I think it's a good, good transition into the next question, which Seth is gonna go ahead and ask on, on what impact this has on you, right? And I says, pass it on to you. Thank you so much for those that shared. Yeah, thank you everyone for sharing um, your stories, yourselves, um, your testimonials. Um, it feels like I'm with you, uh, not just virtually. So thank you. Um, our second question, um, we wanted to ask, how did writing this chapter impact your scholar, your scholarship or your activism? And I'll drop it in the chat. Um, so anyone can feel free to um, jump in. I can jump in here a little bit if that's okay. Okay, well, I just I've been thinking about it as we've been approaching the second anniversary and I, the, you know, this chapter was incredibly significant um, for me. I, um, I think that it took a lot of courage for me to even write it. And the way that I was thinking about it as an anthropologist, I brought my field work in um, that I had done in Michoacan in the, in the mid 2000s with Purepecha women and thinking about motherhood as a political act. 
Um, and, uh, and then for me, you know, I was really, I, when I submitted it, I was, I was at the formative stage of not just only having, you know, a toddler and having just become a first time mother, but also thinking through my own, um, identity as an indigenous feminist and how really I'm at this, you know, this crossroads, um, between, um, Chicanisma and, um, an indigenous critical indigenous feminism and the two, you know, don't often have like the same, they don't necessarily have the same goals. Um, you know, there are different um, political projects with their own intellectual traditions and their own activist traditions. But just thinking through, you know, how those two merge for me um, as an indigenous a migrant and, and, and an indigenous Latina in the United States has been um, important for me as I'm raising an indigenous daughter. And I've continued to think about this. Um, you know, I write in the in the chapter, I write very openly about sexual assault and I write about sexual abuse. And it's something, you know, that in the in the um, genealogy of what it means to be an indigenous woman here in the Americas, unfortunately, it's part of the legacy um, for, you know, um, for Latinas, um, for indigenous women that that we live with. Um, we can only look at the, you know, um, alarming rates of femicide and feminicide across the continent to think about that. But for me, you know, um, and raising an indigenous daughter that it that has, you know, her body as as an, is is a, is as a self, you know, possessed autonomous body. Um, is, um, is, is something that is, that is sacred to me and dear to my heart. And that's, that's what I started thinking about when I first, you know, when I first drafted this chapter and I've continued to think about that now, um, there, there's kind of a second part to it. That's going to be in the, um, Ana Castillo anthology, the, um, the transnational Chicanx perspectives on Ana, Ana Castillo that is coming, uh, come, going to be released, um, this, uh, this summer, uh, by Pittsburgh university press. And so I, I continue to build on Chicanisma and I continue to build on Ana Castillo's work and on my own um, politi political project of motherhood as a Purepecha Pirinda woman um, who's raising a native daughter, you know, in, the, in this follow-up um, chapter that I have in this, in this anthology. So just thinking about, you know, how um, the chapter and, and your, as the editors, the work that you did to be able to allow the type of testimonio that I wanted to bring forth, you know, like I said, it was, I consider it one, some of my bravest, you know, writing that I brought forth um, because I was really coming out the first time to think, to be open about what happened to me as a child and how, you know, all of the trauma and the PTSD that I, that I, that, that formed that, you know, for me to kind of, um, to think through that, you know, in such a brave space and to do so through poetry and testimonial and theory. And that's what I really love about this anthology and why I think it, it made, you know, such a great wave um, in academia and in feminist studies, particularly and in Chicano studies. Um, and for me, it's, it's been tre tremendously uh, significant in that way. And I can add more, you know, in, um, in addressing the third question, but I just wanted to start thinking about out loud, you know, some of those thoughts and share them with you all. Thank you so much, Gabby. There's so much I want to respond to, but I know, um, you know, we have uh, more questions for everyone. Um, everything from, you know, your work as an anthropologist um, to your scholarly interventions with, um, you know, critical uh, indigeneity studies and then Chicanx studies, Latinx studies, um, uh, how you, um, uh, the way that you use testimonial and poetry, uh, not only in this work, but you know, other uh, your scholar, your scholarship, and your um, creative voice, um, and thinking about uh, motherhood as a political project um, in terms of um, your research, but also um, 
as you're mothering um, your child, but also in a way yourself, um, as you shared your story, um, being a survivor of uh, sexual abuse and um, how uh, important that process is um, and what we can do to um, heal that, prevent that, um, advocate against that. So thank you so much, Gabby. Um, would anyone else like to share on this question about how did writing this chapter impact your scholarship um, or your activism? Let's see, um, Catherine. Yeah, it definitely influenced my scholarship, my activism, just everything that I do and who I am and why I do what I do. Um, in terms of my scholarship, like focus wasn't just, you know, the child welfare system, which is what I talk about in this chapter, right? Like um, in my research, I was kind of focusing on like the stigma and the labels of like being gang affiliated and what the consequences are. And just having been like, you know, five plus years since my case and a couple years since I wrote the chapter, now I'm able, now my dissertation is focusing on the long-term like health impacts of catching a child welfare case for mothers of color. So it definitely shaped like why I'm, you know, even doing like dissertation work right now. And it came from, you know, realizing that not only is there like a lot of short-term, you know, um, health, um, you know, impacts, spiritual, just crises uh, that happens with with things like this, like, you know, legal cases and separation of family and removal of children. Um, but there's also the long-term ones that I wasn't able to capture, right? When I was writing the chapter, it didn't come about because I, was, I wasn't even, you know, hadn't even processed what had happened. The chapter helped me um, put it down and, and sort of, you know, like a place of healing and a place of sharing and a place of understanding that that happened. But um, after, you know, now for sure with my scholarship, like now I see that there are not only immediate um, sort of attention that we need with the system, but there's also long-term ones in your health, um, your children, you know, my children's health and our entire family's well-being. And so this is now my, my dissertation is now trying to look at that, right? Like how, how do how do we understand the experiences of mothers of color who are you know trapped in the system and who catch one case and then catch another one and another one because I caught two more after and I haven't yet processed those right so it it definitely like I that's what I focus on and now I have like more understanding of this system than when like I wrote the chapter um, and then my activism even like approaching how I walk with people through legal cases, um, whether that be immigration cases, criminal court cases, or child welfare, like give, having that experience taught me a lot of like how to be careful in navigating, right? How to, you know, work together, how to walk up with pe at people's pace. Um, so in a lot of the participatory defense, you know, activism that I do in the courts with mothers, like, that, that I, I brought that with me, you know, and, and it really came from being able to write this chapter and being able to, to understand that, you know, we're like not alone in like navigating these, um, although it, it can feel like it, especially when you're like, you know, in that crisis of like being suicidal and just in a lot of trauma. So, um, yeah, I, I learned how to walk with people in, in terms of like navigating the legality of it um, short term, but also like how do, how do we, you know, walk with people long-term too? 
Um, so yeah, that's like my my kind of thoughts on on those questions right now. Thank you so much for sharing, Catherine, and um, speaking to um, you know what does it mean as BIPOC scholars to walk in between you know, the scholarship and activism, um, and how you're you um, are phrasing it as walking with them, especially um, uh, with uh, mothers and people who are system impacted. Um, your work is incredible. Um, and we're so happy that um, we have your chapter here in the anthology. Um, and I can't wait to see uh, what other work you have to share with us. Um, okay, how about maybe one more? For, I think there were some hands that were up. Um, Okay, uh, Irene? There were two things that I wanted to draw out from that question that came up that rose to the top. And one was the piece really allowed me to, to claim a methodology to, to feel more confident in writing out this idea of what is a sacred platica methodology in the context of, of I think, allowing myself to go there um, in terms of doing it in an intergenerational setting um, because my previous work had been around spirituality and mommyhood and sexuality. And so, and that was more like auto, auto historia style, testimonio style. So it was like expanding it to think, okay, how can this be also a methodology of platica um, and um, and so that was very exciting for me because I felt like the call gave me the permission to, to, to say it, to do it. And, um, and that's part of the, the, the fuerza, the power of doing like Chicana, Latina, indigenous women's, you know, feminist work, because it's like we're writing for each other and at least to an extent. And for me, that really frees my voice to be more genuine and bold so I'm very thankful for that. Um, I'm in between having tenure as an associate professor and working towards becoming a full professor. And I want to get there with this kind of work, you know, with this kind of voice. So it's like the more I do it, the easier it becomes, I guess, to, to feel like, well, this is just what I'm supposed to do versus, oh, I'm being so, you know, bold. It's like, no, this is like just you all wait, like, this is going to be really good. You need this, you know, and we're all doing this together and we give each other fuerzas to do it. Um, not to say it's not hard, you know, and there's risks and all of that, but it makes it easier the more of us that are doing it. And then I think the second piece too, I was very excited to, to put more in like the community that our scholarship builds, right? It's like, it calls forward the kindred spirits around this work. And like, for example, Ale is here. Uh, Ale recently finished their master's in women's studies. And Ale was uh, brilliantly, brilliantly came forward with a project to do a Mama Scholars Symposium at San Diego State. And so it was really, and all the editors from Chicana Motherwork were there. And um, so it was like a gift that keeps on giving in the sense of continuing to build community. And now at San Diego State, there's much more movimiento around what it means to advocate for student parents and uh, with, with women of color, parents, single parents, queer parents at the top. 
you know, so I see Elsbeth was here too. They're the director of the Women's Resource Center at San Diego State. So shout out to Ale and Elsbeth and that work of transforming the academy to, to really, you know, to really carve out that space so that the single moms and the caretaking, you know, students feel like this is my, this is for me, this is my space and I have something really important to contribute to the academy. Thank you so much for sharing, um, Irene. And yes, a shout out for Ale. Um, that was such a beautiful um, uh, conference that we had. Um, and that was also two years ago around the time the book was first published. Um, and there's just been so much um, community that has come out of that. So thank you. Um, and um, Irene, yes, thank you for um, speaking to uh, kind of creating work in this way um, in the academy, but also outside the academy um, and um, what you're modeling for um, a lot of us coming after you or, um, or, or with you um, as colleagues and peers. Um, so thank you so much uh, for your powerful work. Um, I think now we can switch to, um, we have one more question uh, and I'll hand it over to Yvette. Yes, thank you again, Irene. Um, I can only echo what Ceci said about a lot of us look up to you, of you as a model for our own femme touring. So thank you for everything that you've done and continued to do. Um, the next question, I'm gonna go ahead and um, put it in the chat is what was the significance of this book for you personally and professionally? And we can take maybe one or two folks and then um, we're gonna, we have another question that we'd like to ask everyone. So everyone has a chance to speak. We'll go with Alma, cause I, I, I saw your, your hand first and then uh, Victoria. Thank you. Um, so I think um, I, there's a lot, I think that the book has, the book has had a big impact on me. Um, I, I'm coming today with very little sleep. My toddler is going through a major sleep regression. <laughs> so just apologize, I'm really scattered brain. <laughs> um, so before, I think the biggest significance for me is that um, I wasn't a mom when I, when I wrote my chapter. So I, I wrote the chapter, my chapter is on a Chicana mother-daughter spiritual praxis. Um, and so when I wrote the, the chapter, I, I think I, I had just, I was in the middle of the job market, just applying to a lot of jobs. Um, I was also a visiting professor at a Jesuit institution. So I was thinking a lot about spirituality as well. So it seemed fitting for me, um, to write this piece. Um, but also a lot of loss too. I had applied to what I thought was my dream job and, um, that rejection uh, was really hard for me to, to unpack. So there was a lot of, I was going through a lot, I think, when that chapter came out. Um, but I also, I think, was writing it through the perspective of just a daughter. Um, and so now as a mom, um, I mean, I think this anthology just has so much more meaning. And it was really nice because I think I got the copy of the actual book March of 2019 and my son was born um, April of 2019 so it was it was really beautiful I think to, to see that chapter but to also see it differently now as a mom um, I think it's also really made me helped me understand more of the mothers and who I've 
who I had the honor of working with for my dissertation, I, I think I just understand them a lot more. I understand my own mother more. Um, I understand my colegas who were mothers, um, who are mothers. I have the utmost respect <laughs> because um, it's hard, I think now as a faculty member to be juggling academia and, and parenting and mothering and caretaking. And, and so I've, it's just given me, I think a lot of drive as well, professionally to, to focus a lot of my activism around faculty who are parents and caregivers, um, who unfortunately, so I'm in the CSU system. So I was really, for example, quite disappointed to learn very little. Um, so I've really dedicated, I think, much of my activism on campus to fighting for, for paid maternity leave, affordable childcare, lactation rooms, um, things that I know for folks from this collective were already doing. But I think I, I use, I cite this book all the time in any presentations I give around parenting and caregiver rights. Um, and so it's had a huge impact personally now as a mother, but also professionally and in, in really driving my activism and um, yeah, and, and, and really embracing, I think, um, the, my mother scholar identity. Thank you so much for sharing, Alma. I can only imagine everything that you've gone through from making that huge trend, identity transition and shift, you know, from writing it to now being a mom of a toddler. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> um, I also see, so I see Victoria and Gabby. So we'll go ahead and have Victoria um, share next and then we'll go to Gabby. Hello. I, um, I can't help but recall um, being, you know, commuting to school, commuting to my doctoral classes and listening to your voices in the podcast. And it made it accessible. And I recall you all explicitly naming that, you know, publishing, it takes a process, but the joy, like the beauty of what the podcast can do. And so the, my babies like listen to you all in the womb, you know, and that let me feel that support, the cariño, the, um, um, just feeling held right. Uh, through that process. And it made for a smooth, beautiful commute on the days I didn't get tickets. <laughs> um, you know, but it was like, it was that hard part of like, I want to make this space for my babies in academia, this space for myself without shrinking to show up in my fullness. And so being part of this anthology uh, reminded me of the lineage of who I am walking in this path alongside and who I come from and to take up that space. And I would also offer, you know, early on, it was revolutionary mothering uh, that really brought forth and feeling this like, ah, oh, all right, this is the purpose. This is why this is what fuels. And then to be part of this Chicana mother work anthology in a way that is also bringing forth my own family's uh, stories that I have made peace with without knowing while also uh, reclaiming. And then I got caught up in like living my grandmother's journey. And I also found myself saying, you know what? Be informed by it. Don't feel the paralysis of that. You have to move out of that. And I would say that, you know, it becomes really intimidating. Like, oh, I'm gonna submit this. and 
you know, it's going to be viewed and what do I feel and how do I experience this? And it then also became like Victoria, it was done in, in dignity and integrity. It was done with cariño and it's going to be sent out in the world in that way. And that is enough. And then for it to be received, um, not for the validation, but more for the recognition of um, it resonated. You know, it was um, a space of, you know, extending. And so to be part of this, to extend in this work and to subvert the academy, to subvert the high school classrooms and teaching and coming into the framework of ethnic studies and say like, now we're gonna listen to the mamas and you know, who are the other mothers that inform in the process? Because you know, students will say like, oh, I wanna get my mama Mother's Day card and I'm gonna do this for my mama. And then like, no, we really need to interrogate that. Let's really unveil what that means. Cause what does that radical love stem for uh, and from? And also for those who are not biological mothers. And so the way that the anthology frames, um, for me, both professionally and activism wise, the way it frames the, the positionality and intersectionality of mothering on a broader sense and an intersectional sense of solidarity, it provided space for me to step into myself more in a full um, in a full way of more holistic way of being. And lastly, I just want to say with an activism, I think the pandemic has brought me to think about like, oh, well, I'm not in the streets. I can't be out. I can't organize the same way. Uh, and that through the pregnancies um, and through the pandemic, I also learned that there are ways to organize from the home. There are ways of organizing with the family that is organizing and activism. And it's a really beautiful way that it is enough, Victoria, because I felt like, oh, I want to be out there, but I just, I can't. And so virtually being able to see and organize and then having colectiva spaces. And for my dissertation, having colectiva spaces because the collective mothering is where you can surrender at the altar and throw the tantrum and be in the rage and be in the pain and also receive the medicina from other mamas. And that's been one of the most beautiful gifts through um, the pandemic, especially. Thank you for sharing, Victoria. Uh, I feel like you mentioned so many things, but um, I wanted to say that that what um, sits with me, hopefully will sit with everybody is this idea of like, thinking about this as a space of extending. You're totally right. We have been, continue to be in conversation with the editors of Revolutionary Mothering. Um, and we were trying to resist, to subvert, to make ourselves visible. And um, we continue to learn how to step into ourselves fully, continuously. And we're all going through our own transitions as I'm sure all of you are too. Um, I also want to make um, space and time for Gabby to share. And I also heard from Gretel. So hopefully we can hear from both of you. Yeah, I'll just take a minute to share um, how it's um, thinking uh, once again about significance for me um, and per both personally and professionally. I've been involved in um, 
And another, you know, really extensive project of building transnational Purépecha studies, you know, from this side as part of the diaspora. And this chapter is one of the ones that, you know, I get most most um, emails about from Purépecha folks who are like, I read your chapter in the Chicano Motherwork Anthology, and it was incredibly meaningful to me. Um, it's also, you know, it's it, it was incredibly, incredibly um, groundbreaking in that you're one of the only thinkers who's writing about the body in this way. Um, and to think about, you know, how like mothering and motherhood is an embodied experience and, um, you know, and, and our bodies know, you know, like just like my body knew that I had been abused and that I was a survivor and that completely informed, you know, like not only um, my birthing experience, but also my, my mothering as, you know, that was going to be a decolonial type of mothering that I wanted to undertake that would give my, my daughter more control and autonomy over her own body. Um, just how that's not, you know, necessarily the way that we're thinking um, in, um, in Purepecha studies right now, but maybe that particular chapter could inspire folks um, to think that way. And I mean, I really, you know, think about how impactful it was for me to read the um, chapter that I um, that I cited in 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 the um, in this chapter um, by Nelly Palomos and Margarita Gutierrez on um, on what it would mean to theorize autonomy from an indigenous woman's body, and I think that you know that this is why this chapter is particularly in, impactful for um, especially young Purépecha scholars, where you know we are thinking about this in the diaspora, queer bodies. Um, you know, um, women's bodies and, and what are the kinds of interventions that we can make if we think about, um, you know, autonomy as a political project that begins in these in these bodies that have been marginalized or silenced or are not, you know, spoken um, about in our communities because of um, in, in the in, in imported heteropatriarchy. Um, so and thinking about, you know, that impact is, is really meaningful to me. Um, and, um, and it's wonderful to hear, you know, when, when folks do reach out to me and tell me, you know, that this is, this is one of the first that I read like this. And I'm like, well, I want all, I want us, I want us all to challenge ourselves to write like this. And then maybe we can start, you know, changing the field and thinking through how the diaspora can critically intervene and maybe, you know, decolonizing from, from feminist um, epistemologies. Wow. <laughs> I, um, it's huge. I mean, that's such a huge compliment to, for you to say that folks are reaching out to you and saying that they read your work from the anthology. Folks are reading the anthology. They're reading your piece that this just shows the impact of you, like helping to build this transnational Purepecha studies. And, um, also just reminding us that, yes, we need more writing on mothering as an embodied experience. I mean, we, we are living it. We continue to live it. Um, so yes, uh, um, I don't even know what to say about just, we're all continuing to change the field. And this is just, this is just one of hopefully multiple ongoing anthologies <laughs> that we'll all be part of. Um, Gretel, I want to make sure we have um, time for you to also share. So I think for me, um, the anthology represents um, a before and after. Um, I think that um, as an immigrant, as a daughter of a single mom, as a first generation college student, academia always felt very lonely, right? So I think that the anthology itself, and I wasn't going to submit, but it seemed like everybody thought that I was supposed to, I keep getting emails and messages and then Cecilia invited me. So it was like, it was meant for me to submit, right? And, and I did, and you know, I think it's one of the best decisions that I made. Um, in my time in academia and 
you know, I'm forever grateful for the type of um, community and the kind of the way in which you all work, right? It's different. And I have learned from that, right? To practice um, being ethical, being um, kind, being gentle. I think that matters in academia. So that is one of the things that I, that was significant for me, right? At the level of working relationships, I think you are amazing and I learned from you. Um, and then at the level of the writing, I think that, um, you know, people have mentioned this, right? Like the blending of genres, I think it opened up so many possibilities for me. And as I get closer to getting tenure, I think there's no going back. Like I want to experiment with um, using theory, poetry, um, being more creative with my writing. Um, and just like Grace mentioned, um, I was also going um, through a period of loss in 2018. I lost my stepdad to cancer. I also separated from my kid's dad. And I think the anthology is like that transitional um, process for me like that period. So it, it has um, significance at many different levels. Um, yeah, so thank you. Looking forward to reading your future work, Gretel. <laughs> and yes, um, I, we're still, we continue to learn. We've been a, a part of a collective uh, for how many years now? Six, seven years now. <laughs> and, um, and we're still learning how to, like you said, how to practice in an ethical, lateral, kind, grassroots way. So the learning never ends. Um, all right, I think this is a good time to transition to, we actually have another uh, question to ask each of you. We'd encourage everyone else to um, step in and, and uh, share if you haven't already. All right, thank you all. It's just been so impactful to hear all the ways in which you have responded. We're so grateful that you've made it to this conversation. Um, so the next question that we wanted everyone to respond to is, um, you can kind of respond to parts of it or all of it or one part of it. Um, and I want to start with Alma because I know you'll be having to step off soon. And then maybe Irene will go next because I know she has to step off then. And then everybody else can jump in after that. Um, so the question is, what would you say differently or what would you change now about your chapter um, and or uh, what, if any, are the changes to your work given this political moment, you know, covid racial violence, climate change, I mean, just so much happening in this world that I think we're more attuned to, right? And so, and what is the significance of that? Or you could just talk about how your work has shifted perhaps too. And I know some have addressed that in, in, in the previous questions, but I'd love to hear more. So Alma, why don't you jump in? Thank you, thank you, Michelle. Um, my son is coming home from daycare soon, so <laughs> I'm gonna have to, um, take off in a moment. But um, Ma, I think I, I started speaking to this um, a bit earlier, but um, for me, um, so when COVID happened, um, like many other institutions, uh, my campus um, completely went virtual, um, but we also lost um, our son's daycare. And so it was, it was a very high stress moment. Um, my partner is also in academia. So our son at the time, I think was 10 months. And so we were juggling, figuring out how to teach online <laughs> for the first time, um, we're first time parents and the country is just has completely shut down. Um, and so 
since then, um, we're fortunate our, our his daycare opened up again, but um, we're really right now at the moment, um, I'm really involved with our union. Um, we're really trying to advocate for that lost time that a lot of our um, faculty that are um, parents or caregivers lost uh, due to the pandemic, whether it was, and we've seen the, we see articles all the time still, right? The, the huge impact COVID has had um, on faculty specifically who are parenting or caregivers. Um, the, the, the fewer submissions from the scholars who are women, um, just the amount of load, the added burden and load that's been put on um, parents and caregivers. And so since then, I think I, I, I'm really, my, my research has shifted more um, as a result of my son. I think all of my research is me-search <laughs> um, of, of now juggling academia and being a mother. And, and, and so it's, it's driven us, um, and I say us because it's collective work, it's always collective work, to really push our institutions to, to, to be accountable for the, the, the burden that parents and caregivers have carried on because of COVID and, and also the long-term effects this will have, whether it's seeing fewer women or women of color in, in these tenure track positions or, um, or, or not being retained or not getting tenure because of the huge impact this, ha this has had on our productivity, on our mental health, on our well-being. Um, and yeah, so I think this, that's the direction of both uh, my research, but also just, I think, professionally and personally, just trying to do, pet, to do better for our um, both parenting faculty and students on our campuses. Thank you. Go ahead, Irene. Yes, I agree with everything that you said, Alma. Um, we're just beginning to, I feel like I'm just beginning to process the impact and like you said, there's going to be a whole aftermath to it. You know, I'm, I'm like, yay, it's a new spring. I'm feeling more hopeful than before. We're vaccinated. We're out. Um, but, you know, I, I have two teenagers. And I think part of what it's made me think about, too, in reference to the question in, in my chapter is to it's made me very curious around mental health and uh, intergenerationally thinking about and gathering um, and being more mindful about what, what were the tools of survival, right? Like if this is our moment, this is our, our World War I moment or our, you know, our, our, I mean, it's our pandemic moment of really the whole globe being impacted by something so severe with so much loss and grief um, that we can't even account for because we're like in the midst of it. Um, what, what, you know, I kept going back to, and I would tell my children this, like, you know, we're alive because Abuelita was alive and because their parents were alive and their, you know, or at least one of them at some point <laughs> and having, um, like recognizing that that part of our history is of struggle in a really deep way that I think it makes like to understand it beyond a historical understanding or a theoretical understanding 
you know, and especially in a neo-colonial context to see the disparity of the ways that it affects people across the globe and including in the United States, you know? And so um, for me, I think the mental health piece, um, it made me very curious about, you know, what is the language that people use and what is the, the um, you know, the curandera praxis around how you deal with, with trauma and severe historical moments and ex these experiences. Um, and just the inadequacy, the inadequacy of a Western biomedical framework for addressing the body, mind, spirit. And, um, you know, I feel like a lot of my work has focused on this, these um, trying to understand these more holistic spiritual epistemologies that attend to the whole self, you know, and from, from, um, yes, so, so, but to live it in this feeling of like, damn, we really need this. Like it just, it took it to another level. Um, and it made me cognizant too of, because my kids have really been impacted. Um, you know, it makes me think too, like, okay, we're, you know, we know that it, it tends to happen genetically as well. And so it made me more reflective about, okay, when, when, how did I experience anxiety and depression? Where was it in with my parents, right? But there's, there isn't language, there aren't stories, it's not talked about. Um, and so I think seeing that lens across the generations to do more of that uncovering work um, has become more important, you know, or, or more, has risen to the top as something I want to delve into more. Um, and create other language for beyond a Western biomedical lens as a way through, right? To, to bring to the aftermath. Like, can we bring curanderismo to the schools now? <laughs> you know, because the kids really need it, you know? Um, and, um, and so there's that piece. And then the other piece real quick too, I think is around um, being more cognizant. Now, you know, I wrote about my kids and we did this intergenerational work when the kids were like, geez, it was like four or five years ago. And now they're 13 and 17 and they're going through their own gender identity, you know, uh, paths. And, you know, I, I was so grounded in this idea of mothers and daughters, you know, that it's um, it's been really wonderful to really see how they're teaching me, you know, about Gen Z is just like at a whole other level when it comes to gender, you know, and really dismantling and questioning patriarchy, you know, and so I think that's the other piece that, that's where I need to go. You know, that's where I need to go. And I think like, oh, well, I'm a gender and women's studies professor. <laughs> I've read them, you know, I teach about this. I know about this. And it's it's very humbling, like, oh, damn, like they're 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 just there in a different way than than my generation, our generation. So I, I want to embrace that. And I want to acknowledge also like, damn, it's hard. You know, it's really hard and and humbling because I think I felt 
like I'm a down Chicana mom, you know, like I know about pronouns and, and um, you know, I'm a radical woman of color. And, um, and so it's just a reminder of the challenges and, and that we keep learning and changing and that we, we need to keep looking to that younger generation to keep guiding us as well. Thank you, Irene. Andrea? Thank you. I wanted to go next before the baby loses it. Uh, so um, I, I thank you for, for sharing that, Irene, because I wanted to share that something I would change about my chapter. Um, one, of the, one of the focuses was having this platica with my mother and it really focused on her teachings. And um, one of the methods was this digital conexiones, which in um, times of COVID has really been centerpiece, right? For as we, um, you know, I still live um, here in Utah. My parents live in California, but my mother has learned how to do Zoom and she's learned how to do FaceTime. Um, but at the time when I wrote this chapter, she didn't know much about like FaceTiming or video chatting. And now she's an expert, you know, um, she knows how to use messenger video to talk to family in Mexico. And so I think uh, one of the things is really exploring that more as that digital connection and those enseñanzas around survival and survivance, right? Um, survivance, as is talked about in Ch Chicana feminism is beyond survival and the teachings of that. And um but Irena, you were mentioning something that um, as you were talking, a lot of my questions to my mom were about what was it like for her to have a daughter in graduate school? So it was about like her talking to me. Um, and when COVID hit, as Anma was saying, you know, daycares shut down. Um, my niece, my 20-year-old niece, who's in a community college, uh, moved from California to live with me to help me. I had a son and now have a newborn uh, and she was taking a Chicano studies class and she had an interview um, and do an oral history on um, on uh, and she decided to do it on me but when she was here we were having platicas of what it was like to be Chicana and going to college and she's a Gen Zer and it was a complete like you're saying completely different questions and she said, you know, Thea, it would be really good to interview you and my grandmother. And so from this chapter, you know, um, sharing this chapter with her as she's taking Chicano studies classes um, and doing um, a zine, she went uh, and did more of a zine. Um, and I think, I think it's called pronounced zine. Um, and um, so as you were talking, like even the questions that I asked my mom are very different and the questions she wants to ask her grandmother as she's going through her journey in college. So I think like um, in, in looking back at the chapter, I'm like, wow, this, this digital connection is, but also this generational, right? Understanding of uh, from my niece's perspective um, and asking her grandmother, and then having her aunt there and asking the same questions around um, Chicana identity and going to college and, you know, um, mothering and stuff like that. So, yeah. Thank you. Andrea. I'm going to invite Grace to go next. Um, well, I wouldn't say that I would necessarily change anything about the chapter itself, but um, I think I would maybe 
expand it in a, in a different way. Um, you know, the more a person has experienced social oppression, um, the harder it is to believe, I think, in your vision of social justice. Um, and then to speak and write that vision boldly and confidently. And discrimination is traumatizing, right? We carry that trauma in our bodies. Um, and so I think that one of the things that, that has really become very present during this pandemic and um, accompanying people who are currently incarcerated throughout this um, pandemic, particularly women, um, has been the cost, you know, and folks have kind of alluded to this already, of um, <clears throat> being a directly impacted leader in this work. And for so many who are in so social movement um, work or leading in social movement place, uh, spaces, um, your power oftentimes is like anchored in your experience with that issue, right? And so to lead in the space around abolition and transformative justice um, requires you to touch the wound over and over and over again. And um, <clears throat> Over time, I think there's um, a deepening of those original wounds. And no one ever really talks about that as um, we also ask people to continue to step up and lead and to step up and tell your stories of what it was like to mother while incarcerated or what it was like to interface with um, DCS um, and um, fight for your children, um, fight for access to your children, right? <clears throat> and so you live alongside um, these ghosts. Um, and I think that more and more what has become clear to me is that um, when we talk about developing leaders, and I'm speaking um, specifically about mass incarceration and abolition, and in, in with these comments is that the base building block must be healing and resourcing that. It's the only way for people to be able to show up on purpose and in a sustainable way, right? So what I've seen in this year is with my um, fellow comrades um, who are formerly incarcerated is either a return to the demons that led them into the system in the first place, um, a following, a falling away from movement work entirely. And it's because we don't resource the individual, right? Like what matters even in this work is what you can produce. Um, and I think, you know, well, what I know is that when directly affected people lead, we will win. We will win the policy changes. We will change the social narratives, but at what cost to us? And so this, this call, you know, to say, 
that we matter, I think really is like a turning back inward and telling myself like, I matter, right? I matter apart from what I can produce. And I think that the question that has always been, you know, since um, graduating and everything I went through in graduate school and postgraduate school was like, what is your affiliation? And I think that what I would like to respond to really is like, what do I long for? And what matters to me more than my institutional affiliation or um, the pieces that I published or any of these other, these other gains, right? Because if I anchor in that, in my deepest longing, it's for liberation for all beings. So I think that's what I would write about is leadership and what that means to be an embodied leader. It's powerful, Grace. Thank you so much. Now, we um, have so much to share and exchange, and I don't want to uh, truncate anyone, but I also don't want to uh, make someone go if they're not willing. So if you can raise your hand uh, if you would like to go next and respond to this question or in any way respond to you know some of the other parts of the conversation that have been happening, please please do so. So I see Gabby, so we'll, we'll go with you, Gabby. Gracias. Thank you all. Muchísimas gracias, Michelle, and congratulations on tenure. It's really nice to see you, first of all. And then um, there's two things that um, that I'm thinking about here. The first uh, is, um, let me unraise my hand here. The first is that that um, I, I lived through um, the uprising in Minneapolis um, since last year as a U of M professor. Um, it's now been more than a year, um, you know, that we've had an active decolonial uprising here, um, in, uh, including in, in um, St. Paul and in Brooklyn Cen- Center, where we recently experienced the um, police murder of, du- of um, Dante Wright. And um, I think that one thing that I would think about more critically, as I was writing the chapter, it was right after Trump had gotten elected. And I was thinking back then what it meant to teach um, students um, for marginalized identities who felt directly attacked, you know, under that particular administration. Um, and I think that now I'm thinking more about what it means to teach students in crisis, uh, because not only, you know, um, m- 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 many of my students were out in the streets during the last year. And, um, you know, the kind of, um, the kind of um, trauma that they faced, you know, I've had, I had students who were um, shot with rubber bullets. I had students who went to jail, you know, and I had students who um, were facing um, rioting charges, um, just so, so much, you know, um, to happen to them directly. And these are, you know, Chicana, Chicano, um, Chicanx students and Black students um, and Native students. Um, and to think about, you know, then what it means to teach students who are actually in crisis, you know, like in what becomes a militarized, um, you know, pseudo war zone with the kind of military presence that we had in the Twin Cities um, during this time. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's also an embodied experience that I would think about a lot, you know, just like with myself, 
um, the sleepless nights, you know, that I that I endured for for my students and only thinking about their safety and the kind of danger that they were in checking in on folks, you know, with my text um, strings, my group texts constantly to make sure that everybody was accounted for at the end of the night, the next day. Um, and, um, and, you know, just being really scared a lot on top of, you know, dealing with the pandemic and mothering and, you know, um, during the pandemic, um, homeschooling my daughter full time. I mean, there's just so much that I feel like, um, you know, I just want, I just want everybody to rest now, you know, and it's awful because we're living under this white supremacist, you know, white, white supremacist, uh, heavy presence here in Minnesota, but just like in the United States in and of itself, you know, like the, this, this, these moments that we endured under the, under the Trump administration, not all of it has gone away. We still have children, you know, that are, that are in cages right now under Biden as well. So, um, so I think I would have thought a lot about, about that and what it meant to actually experience it in the raw material flesh. Because I think that even at the time I was thinking about it in an abstract, you know, way of how I would intervene in the classroom. Whereas like now I was intervening in the streets and I was putting, you know, money into students cash app, you know, and, and, and donating to the bail funds, et cetera. Like, what does it mean to actually materially, you know, when I couldn't necessarily be out in the streets every night because I have a small daughter, um, you know, as, as the, co the colega was mentioning before, like, what could I do from that point in time with very little sleep and myself also being triggered by racial trauma? So I think that those are some of the things that I would think about. And then the second the second one is um, with just how also thinking about uh, digital connections and the way that the pandemic has also opened that up. Um, it's been important to connect our daughter um, to what it means to be Ojibwe when she can't be at ceremony, you know, all the time. And so that's been wonderful to have our community, you know, reach out to us and, and say, you know, like we're having a winter storytelling night, you know, we want to invite you all to connect with us and for her to be present with that and like hear her language, you know, being spoken and um, do Ojibwe learning sessions, you know, virtual learning sessions um, and storytelling and, you know, have native women read her books, you know, from libraries and that are specific to native issues. Like th that's all been wonderful. And so I think that, you know, that it's allowed us to creatively think like, what does it mean to indigenize digital spaces as well? Um, so that um, we can continue our decolonial work, you know, as well, like from home when we can't all be together because this is also something, it's not the first pandemic that we lived through as indigenous folks and um, our ancestors, you know, understood that there were rules during this, this time. So how do we follow the rules and stay connected is another thing that I would think about. And thank you so much for having me and inviting me today. Thank you. Catherine. Yeah, I feel like for me, what um, I've been thinking about and sort of more on what I would expand on now looking back and reading the chapter is being able to acknowledge what it means to theorize from a very spiritually numb place. And because now that I look back, it's like, you know, I, I've, I've written a lot from that place. And now that I'm trying to process and heal from like a lot of the crises that I've been through throughout my life, right? Pre this um, case and like after, right? What came with like severe abuse, what came with the other cases for domestic violence, like, I now realize that, um, you know, writing and theorizing and being alive um, when you're numb has an impact on everything you do. And so now I feel like I would definitely expand on that because it would help me think through more on like what it meant. You know, I speak about my grandmother's death, right? I, I don't like expand on that a lot. Um, I speak about, you know, teen pregnancy and like what happened after a little bit, but not so much on like, 
I just never fully got to recover even like my body through every pregnancy that I've had, right? What it meant to be pregnant with my third son and like get um, drug tested and surveilled the whole time. Like what did, what did it do to my physical body, right? And, and from like a spiritually numb place that I felt in, but also physically, like where did I end up with the accumulation of so much crisis? And with that, I think in relation to today, right? When we think about a, a global pandemic, um, I always like to, you know, also acknowledge that a lot of people are, have been experiencing multiple crises for a long time and the community and circle of people who I'm, you know, surrounded by, who are locked up right now, who are in mental institutions, who are in the streets, you know, including like my family and, and close friends is like these, the, the pandemic only like zoomed into a lot more, right? It just exacerbated a lot of these crises, but um, I, I think I will definitely talk about how for, for, for some, you know, for some of our families and communities, um, these were things to be like exacerbated and, and sort of write in a way that connects more to like, well, what happens when you're coming in with these traumas, right? Like with child traumas and, and sort of try to expand on that more. And I know that like I had little space to do that, but every time I look back at it and try to read I'm still triggered, right? So I know that there's still a lot like there um, to unpack, but I'm I'm trying to understand what it means to carry so much trauma and like, you know, be in a constant place of survival, which I'm trying to challenge now too, right? Like, what does it mean to just live while you're in the fight, while you're in pushing back, while you're challenging, while you're raising children um, with, with collective, right? So yeah, there's just so much that I would, um, I wouldn't so much change, but I would build from. I think there's so much to expand with that now um, in terms of just being in, in multiple crises since. I, I've, learned, I've learned to just um, kind of look at it, you know, face, face the demons um, right at the eye and, and be able to heal like that, right? Like, how do you heal? Like Thank you, Catherine. I know Victoria sent me a message and... I want to offer her space, but I just want to read um, Veronica's comment. She's who she writes. I will add that COVID has pushed me to reconsider the mother's work through the lens of abolition for the mothers, the necessity to form different family structures led to a desire to expand those structures. This fed a feminist collective of women where they could be vulnerable, where they could be just be and restructure how to care and be cared that required a different imagining of collectives that stem from a desired and needed rupture with the nuclear family that bred the violence that had hurt them so deeply and that was keeping them from seeing their children. They linked the need to abolish borders with the need to abolish the nuclear family. Just really powerful stuff. Thank you, Vero. Um, Victoria, do you wanna jump in and before we start to wrap up? Thank you. Uh, yes, I and immediately thinking of my chapter I said, oh, you know, one of my frameworks is model hope and relentless resilience. And then the pandemic <laughs> humbled me because last year around this time, just the shock of everything, I was operating from fear and saying like, do I need to write a will for myself at this point? Do I need to imagine um, an absence of my children or my partner? And I had to like really hit um, and also open to receive the support I needed through that, right? And 
I had to open up. I had to open and, and say, okay, there's a healing process, yes, and then there's the systemic, um, you know, um, chokes like constantly that are reminding us of how this uh, uh, neocolonialism is constantly at function. And so in order to do the research, I had to really engage in my healing and I shifted. I said, no, let's, let's really sit with what is mourning and remembering mean. And so I changed that about my framework and rest, uh, restful dreaming, uh, really inspired by Loria Limbal. If like, we don't rest, then when do we dream? And Adriana, who is here on this call, Adriana Garcia has been a huge femtor to me and talking about like what dreaming is possible because there were others who dreamed, who dreamt of this collective occurring in this moment. And it just really brought that uh, whatever offering in this world, urgent in the now and action uh, with integrity, with dignity, and in honoring of the legacies of the children who come after, and in recognition of caring um, who we come from, that it's if it's in that spirit that it will go out and it will be, you know, um, um, built on the integrity and be transformational, be from that spirit of abolition, because anti-racist is not enough, because just saying that we're gonna address some anti-blackness is not enough. Like we need to be bold and it needs to be urgent and it also needs to be done with that dignity and care. And so I also wanna just uplift Don Wooden who's a whistleblower from the ICE detention centers, right? And seeing that our work needs to be intersectional in a way that uplifts and it can't, you know, it's just not enough. Um, and then and thinking about the mothers in Palestine right now and thinking about the mothers across the globe and the urgent call and to think of the mothering that occurs um, and the dreams that they have for their children. And so um, it's a huge undertaking and it is a huge commitment. And we've got to do this as colectivas. Um, we are our own medicina to carry us through. And so when, you know, talking about, um, you know, Sin madres no hay revolución, like we, we build that. Dignidad, rabia, esperanza, right? I mean, that's what we're really building together. And it's, it's absolutely powerful to be in this conversation. And I wish we could continue it. I, I didn't know if anybody had a final thought before I turn this over to Ceci. Okay, so we're um, at time. We're a little bit over time. Um, we just wanted to, again, thank all of our contributors and um, all of this um, powerful uh, medicina, as Victoria um, was uh, sharing. Um, the collectivity um, continues in so many ways um, within and beyond the anthology and all the spaces that we're in. Yeah, with that, uh, we can close. Please continue to share our book. Thank you for citing it. Thank you for engaging it. Thank you for building from it. It's a collective dream that we share together, right? And we're trying to expand, you know, what is seen as knowledge within the academy and beyond. And so we got to keep engaging it. So share it. Um, and uh, let's continue to be in conversation with one another. Andelante, muchas gracias, un honor. Bye, everybody. Have a great night. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Chicana Motherwork on Instagram and Facebook and at Chicana Mothers on Twitter. And please rate our podcast so people like you can find us. 
Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We want to thank Dr. Marta Gonzalez for giving us permission to use the music of Entre Mujeres Sirena for our intro, and Vagabundo from Quetzal for our outro. To purchase our book, you can order it through the University of Arizona Press, and you can find the link on our website at chicanamotherwork.com. If you want to book us for events, email us at chicanamotherwork at gmail.com or for any other question or to engage with us, we look forward to hearing from you.